amen and amen. Thank you, Joel, for reading our passage this morning. And thank you, Joel and Ezra and Melissa, who those are her favorite people, for telling us what the Lord was doing. Um, it is uh, always a joy to hear about the way, the way the Lord is working in his church across zip codes and be able to pray that the Lord would continue to do that. Um, I want to say good morning because you probably haven't heard it this way from me in a while because it's been two weeks. But good morning, everybody. All right, you guys didn't lose the cafecito while I was gone. You got the espresso still. I appreciate that. Uh, well, my name is Eric Solomon. For those of you who don't know me, I get the privilege of serving as the pastor of this congregation. And like I said, I've been gone for a few weeks. I want to say thank you as a community for uh, allowing me and my family to get some rest and being generous with, with uh, being able to... Uh, I don't know what I'm going to say. Just being generous with your time and letting us be able to be away and rest. Uh, We thank you for praying for us. It was a really good time uh, to be away with family and to just have time with friends. Um, And I'm just, I'm back, I'm rested, and I'm caffeinated. So it's going to be a good Sunday. (laughs) Let me pray really quick. Gracious God and Lord of all, this morning, would the words of my mouth... And the meditations of our hearts be acts of worship that are, are pleasing and wonderful, are, are worship-filled acts as we gather around your word. We trust you, our rock and our redeemer, and we show that trust now by opening up your word and sitting under the authority of your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we walk back into the world of the Gospel of Matthew as we continue to experience this, this king who is advancing his kingdom against darkness and against sin. By this point in the story, if you've been tracking with us, you've all, we've already felt the, the raging of the enemy as, as his first attack trying to ensnare Jesus in chapter 4 to these battles he's waging against Jesus' image bearers as, as people are bringing their, their uh, people that are demon-possessed and, and broken in their bodies to Jesus to be healed, to be freed. We've, we've seen the carnage that sin has brought about on the world physically as Jesus is making people whole. And, and the king is, is healing. The king is freeing. The kingdom is advancing. And the king of this kingdom, while well, he is also pursuing followers. Not just people who follow him, but people who will be completely and entirely followers. There's a difference. And this text, I think, will bring that out in some pretty striking ways. I think Matthew has been pretty intentional in setting these, te- these, these scenes, putting these scenes side by side to challenge us with a very important question, a question you might have heard before because it's not a complicated question, but it's, it's a question nonetheless, will you follow Jesus? Will you actually follow him? And I think Matthew actually approaches this question from both directions. And so here's how we're going to walk through the passage this morning. Matthew begins in our text by recounting a scene that I think reveals two reasons why we don't follow Jesus. Why we find it difficult to follow Jesus. Why we might uh, try to redefine following Jesus so that it might suit our needs or our circumstances. And why Jesus will not settle for any kind of redefinition of discipleship. In this first scene... Jesus pierces our excuses. He he exposes our reluctance to follow him and challenges any kind of half-hearted commitment to him. But after that first scene, we encounter two more scenes that I think actually reveal who this Jesus is and give us two reasons, not why we don't follow Jesus, but why we must follow Jesus, why we should follow Jesus, why he is worth following, why the only true good and right response to Jesus is to follow him with our entire lives, why Jesus is the all-powerful king who deserves all of our worship. The king who is bringing order out of chaos, freedom out of bondage, life out of death. So, this morning, let's start where Matthew starts by looking at two examples of why we don't follow Jesus. Why we struggle to follow him, or like I said, even worse, why we might think we are following him when we're really only following our idea of him. 
See, the two reasons that I think this text gives us for why we struggle to follow Jesus is that we tend to either be too focused on me or too focused on them. We struggle because we are too self-centered or too others-centered rather than being God-centered. Let me explain to you what I mean. Look at our text as our first and, let's be honest, super unexpected example pushes to the front of the crowd and addresses Jesus. The text tells us in verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. See, while the disciples are trying to get this boat together, the crowd is pressing up against them, and then someone elbows their way to the front trying to get Jesus' attention. And the text says that a teacher of the law came to him. And this is what he said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, in his typical Jesus kind of way, responds in a piercing but kind of confusing sort of way. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's going on here, Jesus? Now, if you've been tracking with us from the beginning, this is a big deal because on the surface, I mean, this, this is a teacher of the law, a scribe that is standing before Jesus. This is someone who, if you're reading the story from the beginning, was part of this conspiracy group with Herod at the beginning of Jesus' life trying to kill him, and who, if you've been listening in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lumps together with the Pharisees. In other words, this is not one of the good guys in this story. And he's declaring allegiance to Jesus. Well, Jesus actually, very uh, wise and discerning, senses that something is happening below the surface. And he answers, like I said, in a typical Jesus sort of way, piercing and confusing all at the same time. But, but I don't think it's so confusing when we remember that though humans look at the outward appearance, the scriptures tell us that God looks at the heart. And the heart that is standing before him right now is not as pure as he's trying to appear. Let me show you what I mean. First of all, to be a teacher of the law, a scribe, is, a, is kind of a big deal, right? It's, it's like a doctor or a lawyer. It, it, it's not a position that's easy to get into. And in this community is a, a highly honored position. It was like expert level kind of work. And so this expert approaches Jesus and calls him teacher, which on the surface looks pretty good and feels like honor. But there's, I think, something else going on. Because if you read throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's something curious about this title that I want you to see. If you read the whole Gospel, front to back, you will see that the title teacher is used multiple times. Jesus is addressed as teacher multiple times, but every time it is used to address Jesus, it is on the lips of someone who is not a disciple or is a seeker who will eventually not become a disciple. In other words, when Jesus is called teacher, it's not a good sign. It's also not a promotion. It's a demotion. Because Jesus is not some mere teacher. And those who are truly seeking him, well, they recognize this. Do you remember last week's text, the leper and the centurion? What do they call Jesus? They call him Lord. Not teacher. Lord. Because they may not know everything that's happening, but they know that much, that he is not just another teacher to follow. Notice also what I what this teacher of the law actually says to Jesus. I will follow you. I. I. The subject of the sentence is himself. Here is what I will do, Jesus. One commentator says this moment could be read something like this. uh, Teacher, as one Bible expert to another, I have noticed who is on your team so far. I've noticed you've got fishermen and lepers and soldiers and some middle-aged women that you've healed. Perhaps you could use someone with a head on his shoulders and with some religious respectability, maybe. maybe. Maybe someone like me. 
this is your lucky day because I will follow you wherever you go. He makes himself the center of attention and Jesus the object to follow. But think back on the leper and the centurion again. They do the exact opposite. They make Jesus the center of attention and themselves or others the object. The leper pleads with Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The centurion humbly asks for help for his servant. Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. I think this is why Jesus responds the way he does. He discerns the self-centered discipleship that this teacher of the law is offering, and he corrects his perspective. Listen, you don't get it, brother. The road we are walking is not easy. It is not filled with the praise of the crowd. It's not a resume builder. It will not open doors for you in high society. You don't know what you're talking about. And even more than that, you don't know who you're talking to. What does Jesus say? The son of man, just in case you missed my identity. Too focused on himself, this seeker is not seeking Jesus. But, but, but maybe he's seeking power or maybe he's seeking position or may, I, I don't know what he's seeking, but it's clearly not Jesus. And there's too many of us that don't follow Jesus or even worse, think we are following Jesus when we're not because at the center of our discipleship is not the Lord of all creation and the Savior of our souls. At the center of our discipleship is something like a better title or a higher position or being seen as an expert Christian or as the person who has all the answers. As Ibn Said, a a Bible scholar, writes, the disciple here in this moment does not understand that following Jesus means Gethsemane and Golgotha and the tomb. Do we understand that? That following Jesus is not only difficult, but it's not about what we get, but about who he is. That we follow him because he is worthy to be followed, period. He is worthy to be worshipped, to give our whole lives to him. Unfortunately, too focused on us, we struggle to see Jesus, and we functionally, even if not actually, call him just the teacher when he will take nothing less than calling him Lord and Savior with our whole lives. This is why I think Jesus challenges this teacher of the law so directly, and why even this morning he might be challenging us in our own discipleship. Do we treat Jesus like who he actually is, or do we treat him like who we think he is, or who we wish he would be? But then even as Jesus finishes responding, that scene keeps going on because after this first seeker, there's another who approaches. And this time, I think Matthew is turning our attention away from a self-centered attempt at discipleship. But he is giving us another reason why we struggle to follow an others-centered attempt. You see, too focused on them instead of God, our temptation is to elevate our responsibility to others above our responsibility to God. And that is precisely what happens in this interaction. And Jesus sees it and he challenges it. Not just to be provocative, but to redirect attention to what true discipleship looks like. Look at verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. If the first seeker is too eager to follow Jesus, making it clear that he has not counted the cost, this seeker is not eager enough. He has calculated the cost, but he's trying to make a two-for-one deal with Jesus. To understand what's happening here, we have to understand what this guy is actually saying. And I'll give him points for this, because unlike the teacher of the law, he knows who he's talking to. Lord is how he starts his comment, his request. The problem is that it's still, even though he knows Jesus is Lord and calls him that, 
doesn't take precedence above everything else for him, including his family. You see, the phrase, let me go and bury my father, is a, it's a figure of speech in this culture. It, it, it's very likely that it doesn't mean that his father's just died and he's asking Jesus for a few more days. It's more likely that this guy, though he recognizes Jesus' lordship, is actually asking Jesus for, for time, an, an indefinite amount of time to fulfill his duties to his family and his father as a good son. He's basically saying something to the effect of Jesus. Listen, first, let me go take care of things at home. Make sure I, I, I take care of the family business, help my dad until he dies, and then after, after I make some careful calculations there, then I'll come and find you and we can get started. And Jesus cuts right through his figure of speech with his own provocative figure of speech, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. Now, we aren't quite sure what Jesus means here in that particular phrase, but the effect is still pretty clear. Don't put off your discipleship. Everything else comes second to following Jesus. The equivalent of this today is hearing the gospel, and instead of either outright rejecting it or fully receiving it, trying to put it on hold, saying something like, oh, you know, I really just want to enjoy my college years, or I want to enjoy uh, my 20s or my 30s or whatever, and th then I'll follow Jesus when we finally settle down and have a family, you know, for the kids. But as Pastor James Boyce once wrote, discipleship is always a present obligation. There is no wait and see. No, I will do it later. There is now, and we are not promised another opportunity. And so if this is you, and yet at one point you say, I'll wait till later, and then the Lord is calling you right now, do not think that just because you got another chance that there will be another one after. This is where being too focused on them, on others and their perceptions, on others and our relationships, on any other worries of this world, they dangerously crowd out the call of Jesus to follow him with everything we have and all of who we are. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me truly. Not some, some domesticated understanding of following me, but, but truly. And follow me now. Not, not later when you think you're in a better spot, but now because there's no time like the present. You might not get another chance. So let me ask you. What excuses might be crowding out your calling to true and full discipleship? To following Jesus? What, what self-centered misunderstandings or distortions have us deceived about ourselves and Jesus and what it means to follow him? If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to get our eyes off of ourselves and off of others and onto him. It is only then that we will see ourselves and others truly and can actually love like he loved. There is an order to this. It doesn't mean that you don't matter or that others don't matter. It means that you matter in the right order. And Jesus always comes first. This first scene ends as Jesus drops the mic, essentially, and climbs into the boat. It's not much of a transition. They just get into the boat. They follow. The would-be disciples, they, they're left on the shore as these true disciples, the ones that, that are, still, are following Jesus. They climb into the boat with him, and the, the text repeats over and over again the word follow to emphasize following matters. And we follow Jesus not just because he's nice, but because of the next two reasons in our next two scenes. Because he made us and because he frees us. Two reasons why we don't follow Jesus are followed up, I think, in this text by two reasons why we should follow him, why he is worthy to be followed. And, and let me tell you something. As I look through this text, you'll notice if you're looking across all the Gospels that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three Gospels that are most similar, that these two stories are actually always paired back to back. Now, we said this at the very beginning, but I think it bears repeating. And by very beginning, I mean beginning of this series. That the reason I think that matters is something that I said in the first sermon these Gospels that we're reading, Gospel of Matthew, they're not chronological retellings of the life of Jesus. 
They are historical theological stories. And by that I mean that historical is that they actually happened. Theological mean that they're not just trying to give us history, but they're trying to explain the meaning behind history, communicating to us about God and stories. They're, they're using the vehicle of story to do all that communication. And so this is why one writer can have this story after that teaching or these stories back to back. They weren't trying to give a play-by-play. They were trying to answer theological questions and, and communicating theological truth. But, but in the case of these stories, it stands out that in every single one of the Gospels that are similar to each other, they are always back to back trying to tell us that these need to be read together, that together they reveal who Jesus is and why we should follow him. And in these two stories, we see the chaos of a storm and the chaos of demons and see behind them what they reveal about Jesus. That's what I want to call us into, to start with the chaos of the storm as the scene reveals Jesus as creator, the one who made us. Let me start verse 24. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves, they swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And I just want you to picture the scene for a minute, even if you've heard this preached like a bajillion times. Jesus and his disciples, they climb into this boat, and they head out for the other side. And somewhere along the way, Jesus yawns, lays down, and starts snoring. He was tired. But then all of a sudden, the clear sky goes black, and the waves, they start crashing on all sides of the boat. They're they're hungry to get in and even hungry to take the disciples out. And so everybody in Galilee at this time, they know that, that, that violent storms show up pretty quick on this lake. It's actually kind of one of the dangerous things about crossing the lake. It has something to do with wind and hot air and cold air. But, but one minute everything might be fine. The next, you're slipping up and down the deck trying to hold on to a boat that's a, trying to break itself in the middle of this storm. But, but listen, some of the guys on this boat, they're experienced fishermen, right? So they've seen this before. They know storms. But this storm is unlike anything they've ever seen. You see, Matthew uses provocative language here. The NIV translates the word furious storm, but the words are more more like super mega apocalyptic storm. In fact, the word that Matthew uses for storm is one that he only ever uses elsewhere in the gospel for something apocalyptic, end of days, evil, wicked which should perk our ears up as the storm tries to take this group of disciples down. This is no ordinary storm. There's something sinister about this, maybe maybe even satanic about this. And, And Jesus is asleep? And the disciples are terrified. And their fear has them so disoriented that after watching Jesus reverse sickness and cast out demons, they still wonder if they're going to survive a storm at sea. And so Jesus wakes up. And in the middle of the storm, looks around at his disciples and he says, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. (laughs) This is why we follow Jesus, right, because of who he is. Let me show you what I mean. I'll back up. Jesus is asleep, right, in the middle of the storm. He's tired from all that he's been doing, but but he is completely at peace. I mean, you kind of have to be if you're going to be sleeping while a hurricane happens around you. Jesus isn't afraid. So why are they afraid? Listen to them, save us, Jesus, we're going to drown. They're afraid because the storm has disoriented them. They they are so disoriented that they can't see the peace of Jesus right in front of them. All they can see is the danger that surrounds them. And so when Jesus wakes up, notice what happens. He doesn't calm the storm first. No, first, Jesus talks to them. I mean, wind and waves going around them, and he's talking to them first. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said of this morning, he said, he spoke to the men first because they were most difficult to deal with. Wind and sea could be rebuked afterwards. 
Jesus addresses them and their heart and their lack of faith before he addresses the circumstances that are around them, before he answers their prayers to save them. And what does he say? You of little faith, why are you so afraid? I, I think we have the tendency to read this and think of Jesus as like shaking his finger at them, as like frustrated and angry and rebuking them for, for being some kind of faith screw-ups. And while I think there is a challenge that's here, I don't think it's like the challenge that we read just a few verses earlier of these would-be disciples who don't get it, this, this teacher of the law and this man who wants to go bury his father first. No, this is the, I think this is the challenge of already disciples who, yes, should get it and don't, but who Jesus is patiently shaping with faith rather than fear. So let me clarify something here when Jesus says, you have little faith. Little faith does not mean that these disciples, that we, just have to have more faith when we ask Jesus for things, when we ask him for help. As if we are at 5 and we need to really be at 10 before we ask about that thing. This isn't about the quantity of their faith. It's not even about the quality of their faith. As if Jesus is saying that their faith is bad and they just have to trade it out for like a good faith. Jesus' confrontation of his disciples here, before he confronts the wind and the waves, is a confrontation of love. It is a direct way to tell them, remember who you trust. While the storm is still raging around, will you trust me? I mean, listen to me. When we pray like the disciples prayed and we ask Jesus for help, our faith is not determined by what he does, but by who he is. Whether he takes away that pain or not, whether he heals that person or not, whether he fills the bank account or just gives you enough to get by, our faith is not in the way that Jesus answers our prayers. Our faith is in the Jesus who always answers and always answers best, even if we're not sure if it's best for us or not. We trust in him. Our faith is not in our faith, how much faith we can generate in our hearts and in our and grit our teeth. Our faith is in the Jesus who is so in control and without fear that he sleeps through the storm. Do we trust him? Or does our fear crowd out our faith? When the Gospel of Mark records this scene in Mark chapter 4, the disciples are a little bit more explicit when they wake up Jesus. Right? They don't just say, we're going to drown. They're panicked, yelling at Jesus, don't you care if we drown? That's what fear does to faith. It chases faith overboard. It makes us forget who we trust in, who we believe in. Fear is an outworking of little faith because when we are afraid, we forget who's in the boat with us. We forget who's really in control. And so, no, familia, Jesus doesn't just tell us to have more faith, to have better faith. He tells us to actually believe what we say we believe. As one pastor explains, Jesus isn't upset that they are disturbing him with their prayers, but that they are disturbing themselves with their fears. And even though Jesus doesn't really congratulate them for their little faith, notice he actually still answers their prayers. Because their faith is not in how much, uh, 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 not in how much faith they have, but in him. Jesus responds even to little faith, even as he calls us to renewed and deeper trust in him. And he answers their prayers. He saves them. He got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. So even if you have little faith, that doesn't mean Jesus is not responding to you. He's calling you to more and calling you to deeper. He's not just telling you to get it together. He's telling you, trust me. Know who I am. And that's what these disciples are trying to do. But then Jesus does something that like, he gets up and he doesn't just speak to these wind and waves, he rebukes them. And I think that's a pretty interesting choice of words. 
the language that Matthew uses for this storm, remember, was not just any kind of storm, but a storm that almost had like satanic, apocalyptic overtones. And so it's not surprising, but it is surprising that Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. That language of rebuke is the language of exorcism. It's almost as if Jesus sees this not just as an act of nature, but an act of chaos that he needs to bring back into order. And I can't really remember where I, I heard this, so this is me citing something I don't remember. But the one, uh, in this moment, it's almost as if the one who uh, uh, made these wind and these waves, this, this creator, is talking to them, and it's like a dog with its master. They recognize his voice. They sit, they lay down, and they roll over at the sound of their creator's voice because Jesus is always in control. The one who speaks to them is not just anyone, which is why we get verse 27. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. The, the disciples are amazed with what I would call the shock of worship. Right? They're recognizing Jesus a little bit more for who he is. What kind of man is this? Not just any man. He is the God man. The words of, of passages like Psalm 89 might be flashing across their minds and their hearts, right? Where the text actually tells us in verses 8 through 9, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty. Your faithfulness surrounds us. You rule over the surging seas, and when its waves mount up, you still them. Only the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, stills the sea like this Jesus just did. Who is he? Notice that Jesus doesn't pray in this moment. He's not asking God to calm the storm. He doesn't call on the Lord. He acts like the Lord and rebukes the wind and the waves himself, like the God-man that he is. Colossians 1.17 tells us that in Jesus, all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is no mere human. And this is why Matthew places his story right after a story of mismatched discipleship. A God-centered discipleship where we follow Jesus for who he actually is must see him as the one true God, the creator, the one who made us and therefore knows us better than we know ourselves. Why? Because he's not just trusted as a powerful creator, he's trusted as our creator. And so when he tells us who we are, that we are dead in our sin, that we are desperate for him, that we need him, we believe him. He knows who he has made and he knows us better than we know ourselves. We believe and we follow him. And why do we follow him? Because he made us, and yet he doesn't even stop there. The text says he didn't just make us. He knows what's holding us captive, and he's the one who frees us. And I think this is the second reason in our story, going into our next scene. The sea carries along its creator to the other side, and having stilled the natural chaos of the storm, Jesus is about to encounter supernatural chaos. The spiritual chaos that has a, a tight grip on this world because of sin, and that sits behind evil with the darkness and a power that can, be only that can only be broken by the king. And so as the disciples wonder what kind of man this is, they arrive to the other side and see two demon-possessed men coming down off the mountain to answer their question. Look at this next scene in verse 28. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him, and they were so violent that no one could pass that way. Pause. Before we get to what they say, I want to make sure we understand the scene we've kind of stumbled into. And so let me include verse 30 here. There's some distance from them, a large herd of pigs feeding. To set the scene, Jesus is now in Gentile territory, this region of the Gadarenes. And down from the tombs, these, this unclean location that's rumored to be where evil spirits wander, come two men with evil spirits, demons. 
The uncleanness of this scene shouts from every detail that Matthew includes. If the Gentile land to demons to tombs to a, a herd of pigs nearby, it all multiplies exponentially. And it's why I think the text emphasizes their violence. They're so violent, so fierce that no one could pass. This moment is shrouded in darkness, charged with evil. It's kind of like that scene in the movie where the good guy all of a sudden is surrounded by like a hundred bajillion bad people and the music is swelling and you're like, what is, that's what's happening in this scene. With all these details coming up, the chaos in this scene is not for the faint of heart, it's for a king that's advancing a kingdom of freedom. And so the shrieks and screams, they announce their arrival as Jesus faces evil embodied, evil that's holding his image bearers captive in their bodies and in their minds. And so the words reach him and his disciples, what do you want with us, son of God? What kind of man is this? He is the son of God. It's ironic that the first voices to acknowledge that truth in this gospel are not coming from those who bear his image, but from those who are trying to destroy it. James 2.19 says, you believe that there's one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And here they believe, they verbalize that belief, and they shudder before him. And yet they remain demons. They know who Jesus is. They say the right thing, and yet they do not love him. They hate him. Dia Carson explains, this is the definition of demonic, to know Jesus and yet hate him. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Their words reveal not just who Jesus is, but what he's come to do, right? To, to free his people, to save his people from their sins. And he is, let's say, ahead of schedule in their minds. The answer is yes. The judge has arrived and they are out of time. The rescuer has stepped into the world and no longer will they be able to enjoy torturing his image bearers. Instead, they are the ones who are going to be judged and punished. The appointed time is here. The kingdom has come. And yes, there is a future date when it will all be taken care of, but the king is advancing his kingdom here and now. And even when he is looking for a place to rest, his work is not done and his kingdom is not stopping its spread of life. Which means that these merchants of death are going to react very strongly to Jesus. The demons beg Jesus, if you drive us out, they're still hoping there's an out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down into the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. You see, with one little word, Jesus cast them out. If that doesn't show you power, I don't know what else does. Because the whole town has not gone that way because these guys are so violent. And Do you recognize the power in this moment? Go, and they go. They abandon their host. Or, from the perspective of these image bearers, they release their hold. Jesus frees these two men. And just to be clear that they really are free and that these demons will never come back to hurt them, the herd of pigs, well, they drown. They're gone forever. And even as we're rejoicing in this scene, it's interrupted as Matthew pans to the right and we see those tending the pigs run off. They go into the town. They report all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. I think so far so good. And then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, still in a good spot. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. The men are free, and their neighbors go off to tell the rest of the town what happened, especially what happened to these demon-possessed men. But even then, they miss the point. They rush out to Jesus, and instead of worship, they do their best to run him out of town. They plead with him. That same word is the word that Matthew uses to describe the demons begging Jesus to send them into the pigs. 
Meaning that Matthew wants us to see that there's something evil about this town's response to Jesus. To know him and hate him is demonic. And though this, team, this town is not described as hating Jesus, it is clear that they're blind and they do not see their king that's standing before them. The one who is at work to free them. Instead, they cling to their chains and they reject him. They push him away, begging like the demons beg to have nothing to do with him. He is the one who frees us. And this city is more worried about their economy than their souls. After all, a few more exorcism and their livestock and livelihood might be going up in smoke. They could not see the free image bearers dancing before them. They could only see the wealth that was drowning in the sea. Because for them, it was pigs over people. But for Jesus, it's always people first. It's always people over property. Might I suggest that many of us have the same response as these townspeople, even if we don't realize it. We don't want this or that person to come into our house because they might make it dirty or bring bugs with them. We struggle with families because, well, children are messy and they might ruin my stuff. We won't meet the needs of other people using our finances or our property because we are more afraid of the possibility that we won't have enough, that we are blind to the reality that they already don't. We don't see the freedom that Jesus brings, that Jesus died to bring, and instead we elevate our possessions over people. And we may think we possess our property, but it is actually our property that possesses us. People over property, people over pigs. This is what Jesus' kingdom is about. People, the king has come to free his people. This is why we follow him. He is the one who made us and he is the one who has come to free us. And he is worthy of our entire lives, no matter what comes. He is worthy of all of our worship, no matter what happens. So as this final scene comes to a close and we examine the reasons we don't follow him and the reasons we should follow him, the question remains, like I said at the beginning, will we follow him? The king has finally come. Will, will we follow? Will we resist? Will we run? Right? Will we resist him with our self-centered perspective, our other-centered way of living? Will we resist him like the townspeople caring more about ourselves and our livelihood than, our, than true life? Or will we run like the demons who run from Jesus even though they know who he is? Will we avoid the reality of Jesus? Or will we follow? Will we see him for who he is, the one who made us, the one who frees us, and fall down in worship and get up to follow him? What kind of man is this? What do you want with us, son of God? These two questions, they confront us in this text. Is Jesus someone we just marvel at? Who is this guy? Or someone we try to run out of town or run away from? What do you want with us? As one pastor writes, it is not enough to know who he is in our heads. That reality has to make its way to our heart, our hands, and our feet. We need to truly love him, sacrificially serve him, and deliberately walk in his ways. Following Jesus is not just about knowing who he is and calling him Lord or even acknowledging that he is the Son of God. Following Jesus means giving our lives to him because he gave his life for us. The one who made us became like us in order to free us. You see, that title, Son of God, is a title that shows up at other key points in Matthew. But I think the most important scene where it repeats is in Matthew 27, when Jesus is hanging on a cross dying for our sins. Matthew 27, verse 38, starts like this. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by, they hurled insults at him. They were shaking their heads and they were saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. 
questioning this king who is dying for them. These image bearers distort the image of God in themselves, and they throw it in his face. If you are the son of God, demons know, but those he made act like they don't. Until a few verses later, some of his image bearers, the most unlikely ones really, they realize what they're looking at. Matthew writes, verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, the, the ones that were guarding Jesus, they saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Surely this was the son of God. As, as Jesus breathes his last and creation weeps over the death of its creator, cracking even the earth he called into existence, the voice of his image cries out in fear, but even more than that, in faith, he is who he says he is. And so this morning, as we close, how will you respond to Jesus? Will we acknowledge him as the son of God like the demons do, knowing who he is and rejecting him? Or maybe even like the crowd that walks past as he hangs on a cross, mocking him, acting as if he is not who he says he is. Or like the centurion, and, and really like every true disciple, will we believe he is who he says he is, that he is worthy of our worship, worthy of our whole lives? Will we actually follow him wherever he goes? Because of who he is, the one who made you, the one who frees you, the one who died on a cross for you and came back to life so that you would not be dead in your sin, but find true life in him, will you follow him? I want us to sit with that question. We're going we're gonna to call the band up. We're going to sing this last song, Oh, Come to the Altar. And, and I'm going to pray us into that moment, but I want us to sit with that question as we worship, as we sing, or, or even as you're silent, as other people are singing near you. Will you follow him? What do you think following him actually means? What does this text tell you it means? Do you see Jesus as your creator, as your rescuer? Do you respond in your whole life like that to him? Let's respond in prayer to what the Spirit is doing. Our Father, this morning we are in awe of who you are. We praise you because you didn't just sit back and leave us in our desperate situation. No, you came to earth as a human. You lived life perfectly without sin. And, and as you did that, you also brought your kingdom to bear upon this world, broken by sin. You started the healing of your gospel. You're healing people physically, freeing people spiritually. Lord, you are the one who made us. You are the one who loves us. You are the one who frees us. And so this morning we pray that you would open our eyes to that reality. Whether for the first time or in a new way as we continue to follow you, may, may you keep our discipleship from being distorted. May we follow you completely with our whole lives. Would you teach us to follow you? Would you help us to encourage one another to follow you truly? As, as we're about to sing, what a Savior we have in Jesus. We not only acknowledge that you are Lord, but this morning we bow down before you as the Lord of all. Would you draw us all closer to you? Some of us here for the first time. May they not wait like the disciple who wanted to postpone his discipleship. May they come to you today. Some here you might be drawing back, Lord, and not for the first time. They've known you, but they've walked away. May you meet them in their rebellion and in their pain. And would you show them that you are not only their creator, but their rescuer. And some of us here, Lord, you are drawing deeper into life with you. Lord, we want to follow you, and so we plead with you, would you help us to follow you truly in peace and in freedom and joy, trusting you. Pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. 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 Church, I invite you to stand as we respond and sing.
Said you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. Amelia, this morning I want us to do something a little bit different. We did something similar last week, but even as we sing that song and I heard you singing, and I, I kind of knew it with this song, so I was kind of prepared, but I was wanting to be responsive to the, Lord, the Lord's work. I want to invite you to come to the altar. Now, this isn't some kind of altar call where I'm trying to get you to, like, raise your hand for something. But did you hear those questions that we just sang? You feel overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Do you feel how broken we are without Jesus? Or even do you feel broken right now, distant from Jesus, wondering well, what, what happened? This morning, I've asked a couple of people to just be up here to pray. I'll ask them to come up now if you're able. I just want people to be here to pray for you, to pray with you. If the Lord has spoken to you this morning, if as you just sang, you do want to engage what the Lord is doing, prayer is the way to do that. I want to ask Drew to actually sing that first verse again, that you might hear those questions. And then if, if you've been far from Jesus, come up, let's pray. If you've been tangled up by griefs again and pains and sufferings and things that you just, you just wish were gone, that you thought were gone already, and they just keep coming back and keep entangling you like Hebrews says, come up and let's pray. If you don't know Jesus and you're like, something brought me here this morning, I, I don't know what, come, let, let's just pray. We want to pray for you and with you. And so we'll be up here to pray. Drew, can we sing the song for us, brother? 